Thanks for joining us for the second part of my conversation with my friend Reggie. I always find the everyday folks that I know and meet to be fascinating. I love that I can find out more about them from just chatting with them instead of reading a wiki page about them. Last time, Reggie and I left off with us admitting how much we both like moving around in this life anonymously. In this second episode, we'll talk about the thrill of covering a Grand Slam tennis tournament, why Reggie is the number one Fed fan, that is, Roger Federer to those unanointed yet, Reggie's job in the publishing world, along with his goal to have folks read beyond dead white authors so that other voices can be heard, appreciating nature, and the state of politics today. Here is the second half of my conversation with Reggie. You know, I wanted to ask you about that job when you were a tennis journalist for five years and coming to the Open and all of that. It's super fun to talk about tennis with you. How was all those years covering the Open? It was great. I was like a big, like I grew up in a very big, like my dad is a huge sports fan, so I grew up on a steady diet of Boston Red Sox. I know everybody hates oh Boston boy. teams right now, but I all love it. Teams. Love it right now, because it was like a many years of mediocrity growing up. Um, and now all that stuff has changed and I understand understandably that like the rest of the country hates Boston sports teams. Yeah, it's like I, the way that you would hate the Yankees. Yeah, so it now I'm like in now I'm in that position with like everyone hates my teams and I love it. it feels love, good, uh, right, for I, some reason. I love being this I know it's so obnoxious, a city of champions. Thing is, is 11. that what they're calling it now? Well, should the, be. Sorry to say, should be. It's since amazing, 2001. Amazing it's 11, 11 championships, five. Patriots won five times. Red Sox won four. The winningest team in the 21st century, by the way, for baseball. And You're really getting into this. And Patriots. <laughs> and then one Bruins and one Celtics. But I grew up a lot like watching all the sports. And one of the things is like I remember watching My dad was a huge tennis fan. Huh. Um, and it, it's being Asian-American, specifically Chinese-American, it was a huge deal to see Michael Chang win the French <gasps> Open when he was 17. That's right. I that believe was in 89. for me, too. And that was like such a huge thing. And I do remember following, you know, watching Boris Becker at Berg. Um, and then with Michael Chang seeing the rise of, you know, Agassi, Courier, Sampras, Todd Martin and just mm. late nights watching the US Open and the Wimbledon French and all and so forth. So um, when I was younger, we used to, you know, when those tournaments got into the final stages, I guess it was like I, we would watch tennis all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Mm -hmm. It was like that was just like what I did. Like, yeah, it was huge. I think I, I don't I can't remember how much tennis I watched, but because there were so many competing like the Red Sox, you know, I think Boston is primarily a baseball town, in my opinion. So I watched, you know, when I was a huge Red Sox fan. And um, so I don't know if it was, like, quite so devoted. But, like, my parent and my dad used to get us tickets to these rinky-dink tournaments. And Ooh. I think it's Longwood and Newton, Mass. And I saw, like, 
random players like like I think it was Sergi Bruguera and Tim Mayotte. I don't even know what year it was. Who, where's Tim Mayotte from? Because that name I think is it's American. Like barely familiar to me. Okay. I think this so was, you know all these kind of more obscure Like these players. random things. And I think at one point it was Clay or whatever. And so, um, yeah, it was always... I followed it a lot and, you know, following Michael Chang's career and having, like, the one Asian athlete, Asian-American athlete that you can see, you know, he won a Grand Slam. It's, it's huge at the time for the, this community. And, um, yeah, so it was really great to get into, like, you know, I, I follow tennis as a year-round sport, so we put together, like, the yearbook of the tour. So, you know, I, you know began to realize like who like begin to like learn I had to like follow who was winning all these rinky term rinky dinky tournaments and like Acapulco or beyond like beyond the majors beyond the the masters like masters 1000 tournaments and like who's winning the little like tournaments and so at the time like I was very familiar I think that what was it was just thrilling to kind of have unfettered access around the grounds of the U.S. Open. So now, going back when you and I went a couple months ago, and it's just so weird not having like a media pass because that media pass allows you to just like walk into whatever stadium, no lines, and sitting courtside. And it was like I remember the time I've watched. I think in retrospect, well, probably a lot of classic matches. I think I've watched. I think one of like the final Sampras Agassi matches. What? Um, I think there was one classic, crazy match. I think it was a quarterfinals between Federer and Agassi. So Agassi was about to retire. Federer was coming up, and it was this very windy quarterfinal. And I think it maybe it only went like four sets, but it was really tight. And of course, the crowd was all about Agassi, and that was a really great match. So um, yeah, I think being tennis at the time was really interesting, and I can talk endless amount with you uh, about it. I think the women's game was fascinating because I think there were just so many amazing personalities and Hall of Famers playing at the time. There was, you know, you had the Lindsay Davenport, the Americans with Lindsay Davenport. I think Monica came back, Celis came back. But then it was like Jennifer Capriotti, Justine Ennin, Kim Kleisters. And you had like someone like Anna Karnapova. Yeah, the, of course, Serena and Venus, and there's all Martina Hingis as well. So you get all these players, you know, the top eight always made the top, like the quarterfinals of every single tournament. And they, so it's just like the rivalries between any combination, whether it's Kim versus Justine or Jennifer versus Serena, they kept meeting each other. So it was just really exciting. Well, men's tennis, it wasn't quite the Roger Rafa thing yet. So it was, I think men's tennis at the time was going through like the, the end of the Sampras Agassi era, and then it was just waiting to see. Like I think, you know, there's so many times where we're like, who's going to be the next player? And I think like Andy Roddick at the time was going to be the. Host. So I saw I was at his match against Juan Carlos Ferrero, and where all of us were just trying to figure out like who's going to be the next dominant force in men's tennis. And I don't even know if Roger was quite. So like I was, I worked there a few years before Roger actually you know, broke out. He had his big major breakout beating Sampras in 2001 at Wimbledon. But then, you know, he didn't really, he won his first in 2004. So I, like, I will say, like, I'm a huge his fan because I ended up meeting him and he was just, like, super nice. And oh. he had won Wimbledon. So he was of something, but nobody cared. So I was just, I had a lot of respect for him because he was just so nice as a person. And then, so there's, oh. I followed his career since... Like he was nobody. 
so yeah I think the men's tennis was just very interesting because it was a transitional period in the way that like women's tennis right now is under a transitional period because mm-hmm. like anyone is winning anything so I think the time that I was working at the US Open it was kind of the beginning of the Roger dominant period Rafa was kind of not even quite there yet so like right. I'm not even sure when Roger when Rafa won his first open maybe it was like the tail end if I was there because Juan Carlos Ferrero won the 2003 and maybe Rafa won the 04 and that Got was it. my last open so he was somebody like I was aware of him he was a top 10 player but it wasn't quite this whole Rafa Roger thing certainly Novak wasn't around yet or any Murray wasn't around yet oh. so like there was still like this changing of the guard where you had like Roddick Roger Leighton Hewitt oh, Rat right. Safin um and play and then like the old guard I think I don't know like Nikolai David Denko I don't know like I know these all these random players but at the time like you know like a random Swede like Thomas Johansson won the Australian Open so there was a lot of like weird transitional periods and stuff where the women's game was so much more highly entertaining (laughs) and then so near the tail end I think Roger at that point became number one the last two or three years I was working became number year came number one and started just winning everything and then Rafa was winning Roland Garros so it was like a really as a big tennis fan seeing these players being around that atmosphere um, seeing matches of live whether on Arthur Ashe or these little side courts and really understanding them not just like the game and but I think in the beginning I would go to like the big matches and after a while I was like you know what I'm gonna go to like see these like young players you know on the side courts so I remember like same like to watch like Danielle Hantukova I don't think I really she didn't make a huge impact I actually know her so yeah slim girl she's very skinny she had an eating disorder but yeah like I got to know like the tour as a whole so ever since you know working there for five years and understanding the game on a whole different level um, it was just really fun but I think it's not it wasn't a job I wanted to do forever Oh, you knew that after a while? I don't know. I don't know if it's, like, one of those things. It's, like, when you're young, like, I don't know, at least for me, like, I am very impressed with, like, people who graduate college and end up at that same job forever till they retire, which I think might be more common with, like, the previous generation. Yeah, I was going to say But for me, it's, like, being 22 or 21, I think I started the job, and I left after five years. I was just very like, I don't know if I could do this yeah, for the rest of the year in Lynn, Massachusetts. So to me, it's like I wanted to like go out into the world. So I, you know, I went to grad school. It was like a way out, um, oh, and that was very different going to California and everything. So like the tennis job is amazing. I'm still a huge tennis fan. Still huge. Watched Federer lose this morning. I think Federer's like he's he's easy to like. I mean, you know, because not only the fact is he an amazing player and f- lovely to watch, but he's just he seems like such a great guy. So that's kind of the reasons why I like him. Is there a reason why you specifically he is your favorite favorite player of like all time of all the tennis players that you've watched live? <laughs> I mean, I could go back and say. I mean, I love Fed so much too, but I may actually say that. You know, I loved Agassi so much too. That's it's pretty close. I think you would say that of all the players you've watched of all time in your life, you really like Fed like the best. Yeah, I think he's like what you said. He's a good ambassador. I think some of it comes down to like I was 
I had a really good interaction with him very early on. In a, in a time span for men's tennis, for the men's game, I think everyone, the time when he came up, everyone knew that Agassi and Sampras, and I really liked Agassi as well, um, that generation was fading away. And I'm looking, you know, and looking for who the next big player was. So it's like, for whatever reason, I didn't particularly like Roddick. I think there was some, I think the, like, he seems like a really funny guy. Um, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of respect for his game, but I think there was some American brashness that kind of turned me off. Uh, like kind of, I kind of liked like, that about him and didn't like that about him. So for me, it was just like, I at least, I thought, you know, there were, all these guys were all like the same age, like the time, they were like 22 or something like that. And I just didn't like that American brashness. And, and, uh, and like, I, I liked at the time, you know, it's easier to get behind like, people who just won something so at the I time know. like it was terrible but I could like me and some it wasn't just me that like people who were working there um you know I was pulling for Juan Carlos Ferrero because he just seemed like a nice person oh. as well and I wanted him to he had just won the French Open so I wanted him I wanted someone like I liked Murat Safin a lot you know but someone like Murat Safin who's like um who has all the weapons and can do really well and I've had really good interactions with him he was super nice um, like there was one time. I didn't have too many interactions as a journalist. Quite honestly, I thought, yeah, I that, that that's well, the thing. Like, I thought like, you like I covered it, so it wasn't like I'm not like writing an article for like the New York Times or. No, anything. but I'm it's saying like, you're actually in the same room and yeah, you're able so, to see how they're acting off the court and all yeah, that so stuff. Yeah, so I did see like observe. There was one time like my I think it was like my sister was like she had I got her free tickets and she was waiting for me after I finished up and I think my friend Camille was there too. And they were waiting up by like the, like one of the gates, and it just happened. It was a late match. Murat was there. He had just won a late match, and then I think my sister was greeting me. And then there was like a a Russian family with like two small children, um, and then Murat came out, and he saw us, and I was like, oh my God, it's Murat Safin, and. You know, he was clearly drinking um, beer or whatever, really? and he saw this like Asian, like this sorry, this Russian family with two small children, and like he just like took pictures with everybody, and like he hid his out al- like alcoholic <laughs> beverage behind him, so he wasn't like drinking in front of the children. And I'm like, that's just really classy move. Like, I've, yeah, so like I've seen him at matches and I've gotten a picture with him like while he was like watching his sister play and things like that. So like I liked him because he was such a head case. Um, he, which makes him human in the way that, you know, Federer isn't quite such a head case. But like, I really like Murat Safin, and for all his neuroses, and he had such a great game. But it's hard when it's hard to root for someone. I guess like rooting, like being a Federer fan has been very easy for a lot of the last fifteen years because he was constantly winning. And someone like, you know, Juan Carlos won one French Open, reached the final of the French, and then the final of the U.S. Open didn't really like consistently do anything well same thing with Murad he won two over a different time and at that time for looking at like Leighton Hewitt I know I think he I became a lead fan of his well, he was he said some like perhaps like racist things at the US Open that didn't so make that me was happy. that was unsettling so in terms of all these different players who was coming up at the time you know Roger was the one person who I met that was super nice and then just seeing him like win so much to the point that it was just it was just it was crazy for me you know it was just to see that so I think that 
Yeah, and I don't know in terms of the like in terms of like older players like the '80s. Like the I don't think I follow tennis as much to be like, oh, Becker is my favorite, um, and things like that. So like it's just watching someone be a nobody and suddenly just literally take off. I was going like, to say, I think that's part of it's it. It's cra- and literally win like three majors a year every single year for a very long time. Even now, he's still winning. Um, it's just crazy to see the arc of whether or not he ends up being the greatest of all time or the second one to Rafa or Novak, whatever. He's ultimately going to go down in history books. He's owned so many records. It's just very, it's to see the arc of someone's career from the very beginning. That's and like he does, whatever reason, does kind of... There have been books about his fandom being people who like adore him and love him. And I, I when I worked in at Pearson, there was a woman who was in production and she would time her vacations to go to different tournaments to f- that he was playing at. And she would get all his, his you know, hats in different colors. And okay, she's a crazy fan, crazier than you are. Like, I won't do that. So, like, I'm not even going to, like, nowadays, like, no, he only plays with Arthur Ashe. I'm not buying an extra ticket to go see him. Like, I for think that. you've seen him play enough. That's like, enough. It's, it's fine. <laughs> it's, I'm okay with that. But I just, like, yeah, and, like, what's, like, some of the, what makes it even more fa- in terms of fandom that makes it, like, with tennis versus, you know, any other team sport is that when the Patriots lose, I'm just like, okay, next year. You know, next year they'll be okay, and they'll win the Super Bowl next year. With tennis, now that Roger is very old for tennis, 37, I think, 38, I think, um, you know, there might not be a next year. So now every single win or loss, there's a lot more weight to it, So which makes me more insane. Oh because gosh. this could be the and same thing with Serena. I adore Serena, and you don't know how much... How many more years do do these players, Rafa too, who's right. a little, who's a lot younger, but um, they might like you know Agassi and Samper are supposed to retire around 33, right. and Rogers 37, 38 with the family. So it's like that the kind of like those tennis fandom and being a tennis fan is a lot more stressful because there might not be a next year, and I want him to add to his legacy at this point because I followed his career for so like so many years that ex- that all explains it I I'm definitely super glad that he's healthy again 2017 was an amazing year for him and Rafa I'm a huge Rafa fan so when I stopped watching tennis a little bit it must have been around 98 probably when you started working and then I had probably no, I, like a 10 15 year break I worked in a one I started working in a oh, one sorry that, My first open was, um, it, it ended like around, like literally, it ended on a, I'm trying to think, a Sunday, and two days later was 9-11, so that was my first open. Oh, that's what you remember. Yeah, yeah. that's what I remember. So I kind of miss the whole, you know, ascent of Rafa and Roger, and, and then I did come back to tennis maybe, say, five, six years ago, playing it and being a fan again, and I'm so glad that... They're healthy again. Again, it's it's a it's a little unusual that they're you know a little bit older and still playing so well and in competition. But that's I was so glad to catch being able to catch watching them live. I mean, obviously we can watch footage of this stuff on YouTube now. But um, yeah, it was such a joy to be able to watch them, and I'm glad they're still around.
So let's talk a little bit about what you do here in New York. And I know you said you got a publishing job here. Um, how's that going? It's good. I've been there for six years. Um, I work for a small nonprofit publishing house called Library of America. No one really knows them, but they specialize in canonical literature. So essentially, we largely published dead people, what's, dead writers. What's the literature called? Well, it's a canonical. It's oh, just oh, okay, you want to say it. like, like it's like you want to be part of the <laughs> if you want to be part of the canon. So it's kind of like perhaps the Hall of Fame of American writers. So largely they're either dead or very old. Um, so you know anybody from like Edith Wharton and Henry James to Philip Roth. Um, and so it's like fiction, nonfiction, philosophers, political scientists, historians, um, anthologies about um, like first-hand accounts of the Civil War or Vietnam War. So it's kind of like, and the books is based off the the French um, has a similar thing where they design the books to be this perfect like the perfect size is hardcover paper that is that will never decay and, and yellow you know it's was the most readable type of thing for like so yeah our books tend to be a higher price point but they are really beautiful and you want to like writers you know it's it is an honor to be a part of like the american canon so i've been there for six years and i somehow fell into this line of work but i did hey basically even though i'm not a lawyer I handle all the intellectual property so i like negotiate contracts oh. and try to make sure that if you want to publish um i don't know john ashbury i will try to figure out either work with the agent who represents the state or the publishing house that publishes him, whoever owns a right to negotiate terms so we can make that happen. As well as I also, it's such a small, the benefit of working for such a small company as opposed to more corporate, I feel like in my time working in a corporate, you kind of feel like you're a cog, like you're just one part of it. And working for a small company, there's like 18 of us, I'm like my own department. Um, and there's a lot of room to to grow and do other things. So I end up doing a lot of more like editorial work, whether that's like proofing, um, copy editing, copy you know fact checking, and getting my own projects off the ground. So that's, that's kind of exciting. yeah. I'm doing this project right now, which I'm really really excited about, and it comes out next year. But I had a while. Of, so in all this talk, I guess the context about talking about canonical literature, I'm always very aware is one of the few minorities at this company. It's like I'm always trying to promote, make sure, and I do feel like it's really important that to expand the idea of what is considered canonical. And I'm always encouraging people to read more women, to read more people of color. Um, I think it's important instead of just reading the same old dead white men. So um, I'm always looking for projects and I just had to stumble upon this novel by this um, writer named Nancy Hale who was who basically wrote from the 30s to like the 80s and she was a bestseller. At the time she is one of the most 
published authors in the New Yorker's history. She has a similar editor as the great um, Maxwell Perkins, who championed her, and he also championed other writers like Fitzgerald, Hemingway, and Thomas Wolfe. And she had a big best-selling book, which I had picked up, and was called The Prodigal Woman. It was written about 1942, and it was a New York Times bestseller list. And I read it, and it was a big, fat book, and without any expectations, and I, you know, I don't know if I'm biased, but it's like Nancy Hale grew up in Massachusetts. Um, a lot of the characters in her works and her short stories like hang out in the North Shore of Massachusetts, where I'm from. Oh. Rockport, Gloucester, Cape Ann area, downtown Boston, Copley Square. So I know that landscape. Um, so that drew me in. And she was writing in the 40s, and it's quietly and quietly feminist, which kind of interests me about how, you know, she was writing in 1942 about abortions and women not, you know, these these characters who don't want to get married and have children and wanted to have a career or, you know, yeah, getting pregnant and not wanting that baby and because it was illegal here, going to Mexico and... Yeah, like having a very bad time of this, you know, botched abortions. And I just thought that was in mental health. Like she herself had a mental breakdown in the late 40s. And she talks a lot about mental health and things like that. So I was just very interested in who this person is, who on paper has all the credentials to be known, like other New Yorker writers who have gone to that magazine a lot, people have heard of, like John Cheever. And she had the same editors as all these other who we now are taught in school and think, you know, but I think, so to me it was like very interesting to learn about this writer as a, in her work, I've read probably like over a hundred of her short stories and a bunch of her novels. And oh my gosh, she produced a lot. Yeah, she has about a bunch of, no- like maybe six novels. Uh, she had the, at the time, I think, at least, considered the definitive biography of the artist Mary C- Cassett, impressionist artist, and children's books, plays, and tons of short stories and memoirs, and how this person, she died in 1988, could have so, like, nobody has heard of her, while her contemporaries, like, people have heard of John Cheever, and thing, people like that, and she had, like, Maxwell Perkins was considered the greatest editor of the first half of the 20th century, and the, her second editor, Maxwell, William Maxwell, was another titan of the industry of discovering these great writers, like, movies are made of these people. Um, how she and it's like so to me it was like it was very interesting I mean, to see did you, should we just make the assumption they weren't pushing her work as much because I think she was a woman I, think I, I doubt lo- it had to do with she wasn't as talented I think it's just like there's a double standard and I still think it goes on in publishing and I think in my own way I tried to you know there are so many what like sexism were like just like there's a lot of different groups measuring like women don't get reviewed as much in major, like the New York Times book review. Hopefully things are changing a little bit, and I think they are, but there's like a lot of bias. Like you can have a male writer write a, a domestic novel about a family and all the things that go with that, and people will be like, oh, this is 
this is literature, you know, this is something we should pay attention to. But I do think if a woman wrote the same thing about a domestic novel, it wouldn't be hailed as being anything more than that. Or that so I think slice it's slice of life story. Well, I think it's a considered woman, quote unquote, win, women's fiction. So I think the reason why someone like Nancy Hale, whose work, I'm not saying she's consistently like mind blowing or something. I do really like her work. That I think she was wasn't writing on this giant like her focus was about women, the inner lives of women, about women who, you know. You know, I think they're all in their own ways like wicked or flawed or, you know, there's, you know, I think she has this one story that people in the office really liked and it was just about a, you know, coming age story. This girl developing, who, who was coming terms to with her own body, like her sexuality. And it's just like in a way, it's not like a new story, but it's just done in a way that's like the, the object of her affection, this, this the stable boy of course in Cal in Connecticut you know it's beside the point it's not about him it's about this almost like frantic energy where this girl and this story is like I believe in the late 30s just doesn't know what to do with this her burgeoning sexuality that she's like wandering around like not wearing underwear and rolling around in the mud. It's, so it's just like attacking it, tackling these kind of issues in different ways. And she's talking about the complexities of a woman's life. So she's not talking about like, I don't know, like Hemingway's was talking about the Spanish Civil War. She's not, she's not talking about mm -hmm. the things she was saying that there was something valid in these. She's painting on a smaller canvas and saying that this is valid about women's lives and I think it's very off like I do think in general men don't really read women so they're not they're going to overlook someone like her who's talking about you know some of her stories about women being pregnant and being like what the fuck is going on with my body and or not feeling connected with the baby that you just gave birth to you know there isn't and that's to me that's refreshing not every story about mothers has to be this like warm and fuzzy thing it's just what is this? And I hate my mother-in-law. And I hate my husband. You know, there's a, there's a certain like toughness into her work, even though her writing is very like beautiful, um, lyrical, and dreamy, talking about childhood and mental illness. But it's not like these grand. Um, it's not a grand canvas, and not this like grand scope of things that really, you know. You know, I think it's just very easy to label her as a woman, quote unquote, women's writer and not take her seriously. Even though at a time, like she had a very long career at The New Yorker, had all these books, but it's writing, she's writing about women. So I think it's really easy to like ghettoize that. So my project, uh, since Discover, like trying like reading her, we're basically doing a collection of her short stories and we got um, the remarkable Lauren Groff, who, like it's a two-time no, national. I don't know who that is. She's a. She's one of like in my opinion. She's one of like the most prominent um, writers. Period. Like under, you know, like younger writers. Wow. And she just was nominated for a second National Book Award. And you know, I worked with her to pick twenty-five stories. And I think her name is great. Um, yeah. So it's like we're trying to rediscover somebody that I think is worth reading again like it's not I, I I try I want people to read beyond just reading 
dead and white authors. And I think it's important to see other people's experiences, whether African American, Asian American, but like like because of the confines of my job, like what our mission in terms of publishing more or less older or like like older or writers who have a long career is very difficult to look at it in terms of and, you know there there aren't that many Asian American writers that have very long careers that would almost like qualify uh. for what we do. Maxine Hink- Maxine Hong Kingston being one of the exceptions, which I'm trying to work at. But like, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think African Americans have a lot more of a history with writing in this country than like Latino or Asian. So I'm trying to look at it to be like expand the idea of like women in general. I I look at our catalog and. I don't see a lot of mid-century female fiction writers, and I'm like, why is that? Are there no writers then? There were women writing, but it's just a matter of like these, like this group, this academy, whoever these people are, who are, are tastemakers and decide who to be read or not. That's the thing. I mean, we can have all, you know, the women actors, you know women finance folks, but it has to be the folks at the top that are making decisions. Um, So I I used to always think, you know, when you figure out that most, you know, back in the day, you know, not only stuff that we studied, most of the stuff was written by usually men. This is how, you know, the world has been shaped and it's really only mostly been like, I'll use your word, a male experience. And so um, I'm so glad that there's now other voices. Again, we've always had women writers and directors and stuff. It's just that we don't, um, a lot of the decisions. So you could have like, for instance, like a woman director, woman writer, but the producer who's funding the movie at the top of the studio could decide not to greenlight that movie through or not to distribute Mm -hmm. it and all of that. So um, again, I always said when I found out about, especially this new project, and especially when you were working on possibly the other Maxine Hong Kings. Is it Maxine Hong Kings? Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, thank God there are folks like, you know, Reggie in some of these types of industries and roles that are able to now open up some of the doors for yeah, it's, it's still you know, really other hard voices. though. It's hard to be one of the few voices that, you know, trying to put like in in my company, trying to keep pushing it and make you rethink of like like why I just remember, like, I know probably a minority about this, but I was never a huge fan of The Great Gatsby. It's oh, fine. Oh, you're one of the few people. That's one that I actually liked a lot. It was fine, but, like, you know, who said it was great? You know, it's one of the, I think that's one of the thoughts. Like, exactly. Like, who said this was, like, you know, top five best novels of the 20th century? Like, really? Like, it didn't do it for me, personally, though I did read it reread it again. I'm like, okay, I liked it better than what I read in high school. But who are these decision makers, these academy who then teach it in schools and it becomes like a bigger thing. Like I had read like one of the projects I pushed for was Mary McCarthy, which I don't know how much people know her anymore. But yeah, like I read her book The Group, which is about eight eight college graduates from Vassar and about their lives as um, 20-something women, which to me it seemed like a you know, it was like written, I believe, in the 60s, so she's a generation after Nancy Hale, and just talking about, you know, sexuality and different issues, like sexual harassment, very frankly, and she was an outspoken um, feminist, I believe, and like, who who said the group wasn't 
worth reading, you know, or didn't push that, you know, it's just kind of, it's just really interesting to me how things endure, the things, the books that you hear about and being taught. So there's going to be like this nebulous group of people that are kind of like the gatekeepers and being like, no, we should teach, you know, Fitzgerald or Hemingway in schools, but like there are very few, particularly in high school, that there are very few female authors I can right now at least think of in yeah, terms of who, who we've read. I think Toni Morrison, The Bluest Eye. I was just, we've read that too. And Harper, Harper, Harper Lee. Lee. of course. But, you know, I would be hard-pressed to read anything beyond that. And obviously in terms of like, you know, writing, it's like who wrote, you know, to access generally it probably like comes from socioeconomically higher backgrounds and like women didn't also always or minorities didn't always have the opportunity to have the luxury of writing stories but like like nowadays things change and I just I'm just trying to push so for having more minorities or women's voices be heard and be like this is worth reading and not just the same old to me kind of tired canon (coughs) that we're taught that this is canonical and you should read it. Yeah, no, thank goodness again for folks like you. And I'm going to assume that work is probably rewarding, besides the fact you found this great author who you like a lot of her writing. So everyone should go buy it. It's rewarding, too. Oh, I know. I was like, so is there, are you guys able to tell the expected, would you call it like a publishing date? Uh, It's going to be October of 2019. The title is called Where the Light Falls, Selected Stories of Nancy Hale, edited by Lauren Groff. So it's like, I wanted to too well obviously I spent a lot of time you know intimately like whether like negotiating the contracts with everybody and like hiring jacket designers um like who designs like the interior and everything so I'm of course and very it's like my little baby at work um but yeah I don't know it's been it's been gratifying this is probably the longest job I've ever had up on six years yeah it seems like you're doing really well they're letting you do more of you know yeah just like to promote different people someone always on lookout for like whether it's like pushing like Maxine or other writers that I feel like should be part of the canon and are interesting or yeah so besides um, doing besides doing your work in the publishing world um, what kinds of things do you let you do for fun on the weekends in New York? Um, I don't even know what I do. I, I do. I go to a lot of like museums. I'm a member at the MoMA, so now it's not like I do it all the time. Um, just typical. Just having. I like to dine out. So I, especially with you, we go around trying different foods. Um, yeah, my only knowledge of the restaurant world and the food scene comes from Reggie because probably 10 years ago I stopped following it and Reggie's the only reason that I've been able to dine at some of the hotter and better restaurants in the city, thank goodness. Well, you do have to plan in advance. Like, like there's a restaurant near me called Claro and it just got a Michelin star, Joy and Gowanus. What? And like, we gotta go there. 
like I have like I have gone. I went in September before I got the Michelin star, but it's it's very small. It's very good Mexican place. It's super good, and but this is one of those places. If you want to go somewhere, you have to plan like in a month, like literally make a reservation like thirty days out so you can get a table. Uh, I'm always like very planning, but like yeah, it's just like seeing friends and like eating, catching up. I love film, mm-hmm. um, so. As a member of MoMA, they do this series called In Contenders, which you and I are going to do. But That's like, right, it's contender season again. So it's like all these movies I can see for a dollar. And a lot of, I saw Widows, the Steve McQueen movie, and like he was there. And you know, you and I are going to go see like Wild Life and Zoe Kazan and Paul Dano and Carrie Mulligan are going to be there for a Q&A. So yeah, like I love film. I love talking about film, love seeing it. Um, everything um i like going readings i'm being in the publishing world and big reader um try to go to the theater um, yeah, maybe like once a month yeah i see a lot like i think it's like living in new york is really interesting like i do have I know a lot of friends. I have some friends who live, whether they live in LA or DC, Boston, they're, as well as my, my sister, they're always coming through. So it is like a weird thing that living in New York, I end up seeing a lot of my friends who don't live in this part of this neck of the woods. I see them a lot. So I'm always like, I'm like a, which I do like, this is not a complaint, I'm kind of like a hotel and I every week I'm, you know, I had a friend from LA last weekend, two weekends ago, my cousin was here last week, so I'm constantly just like, luckily, thankfully, none of, none of the people staying with me want to do stereotypical touristy things, which I don't know if I go around, but it's something, so I'm constantly like hosting and doing like a pizza tasting tour through New York and things like that, so. I think that's part of the reason why you're a little bit more active socially than me. I think it's a function of the fact that you do have so many visitors that, you know, when you have folks visiting from town, you want to go out and do something a little bit. I stop going to museums and shows and seeing as many films out in theaters, just becoming more lazy. But if I had a bunch of people visiting me in you town, want, they, they I want would to do something. Yeah. So every time someone comes mm-hmm. in, like, when my friend from LA came in and wanted to see something on Broadway, so we saw the new um, Daniel Radcliffe play, The Lifespan of a Fact, and then we have some other mutual friends that are really into the theater world and recommend seeing this like smaller play about um, North Korea at the pu- on, at the public. So we ended up seeing that, and it's cheaper. So we ended up seeing two things and dining out and just kind of like really embracing the city, it definitely gets tiring. So there's a lot, and and since as a person I can't sit still, that like, I like doing like weekends or day trips. Like you and I went to Beacon twice. I think, oh, wow. but once, once you and I went to Beacons, like, like, and then we did like the art museum. We and, did that. That was beautiful. And they just there's we so went many. To Stony is it like something hollow? <laughs> Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow. That was the other thing. No, it's just like even just finding like these day trips you can do, whether it's to like the Metro North or, which you know I went to like Atlantic like Atlantic City. You know, it's all really. Like, I'm in I'm in like Philly to see people there, so it's like. As much as I do love New York, it is a very tiring city um, and stressful city, especially since the subway is falling apart. Oh. Um, but yeah, like a lot of times, it's just nice to get out of the the crazy go 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 ness of it and just kind of like 
go up to Sleepy Hollow or Beacon or Hastings or wherever um, just to get out of the city and, you know, get a little bit of nature in. So it's... Oh, I know the place that we went to. We went to also Storm King. That's I'm what remembering it is. That's that. What we went to like I think you you get you because that's when you told me you're not you realize you weren't that into nature, um, and you're more into the built environment, meaning it like like having buildings around and things like that, and you didn't necessarily need to spend a whole afternoon in like say like a big forest or a big like I don't mind like the day like just spending a day like when I was living in Massachusetts, you know sometimes I would go like hiking and. New Hampshire, you know, and it's oh, wow. very, it's very like beautiful. Um, but yeah, it's like that's great. Like, I've, you know, I've even in California went to like Joshua Tree and it's really gorgeous. You climb all the rocks and everything like that. But do I want to camp there? No. You're <laughs> like, like not for multiple days straight. No, I wouldn't. I'm not a camping person. I don't know my stereotype. I don't know if it's like an Asian thing. I don't think you know. Like my parents. My mom and my parents, I think growing up, I wanted to yeah. like get a tent and like sleep outside in the backyard. And my, my parents were like, no. And then we never, I never did. So it's like, I, I appreciate nature. Like probably like, I would say like when I feel most zen or spiritual about things that it's usually around nature. I just feel so like, yeah, so it's like, I guess it's like weird to say like what do I do in New York and it's like all those like cultural things, movies, theaters, readings and stuff like that, but I also like need to get away, whether it's a weekend away and I try to like incorporate travel. I was gonna say you travel a lot too, thank goodness for you. Yeah, I'm trying to do I try to do at least like one international trip and like yeah, in terms of nature, like I remember going to Malta a few years ago and there was a th- this beautiful rock formation called Asia Window and just kind of go there and just sit there and I love water and just listening to the waves and the smell of the Mediterranean Sea and seeing the rocks, you know, formation and just, it was just, it was, it's a very like zen place. It's just a very calming feeling. I don't really get that kind of feeling when I'm in New York or any other city. You know, it's more of like this connectedness and to the bigger world. It's beautiful. It's very calming. Um, so, yeah, I try to incorporate as much international travel as possible as my finances are allowed. You had told me there are so many folks, obviously, especially in New York, that were disappointed with the results of the presidential election in 2016. I just remember you said you were out protesting, and I was wondering if you had <laughs> done that before. Because I work, I work right by there. Okay. And for that, so like I think. You just couldn't stay away. I went to the women's march, and sometimes I pass by the building, and there's some protests, and I would just join in. <sighs> and I think, can't remember. I think, can't remember. If it was like right before the election or right afterwards. Probably right afterwards. I think like Mark Ruffalo and other people did things around Columbus Circle and then we just felt a sense of, it just felt like, like I've always been politically engaged and the 2016 was such a shock and for liberals and it just felt different than other elections. Like I was very disappointed in George W. in 2000 2004 and then 2008 with Obama it just felt like this, this country was um, moving in a direction that I, you know, I 
thought it should go in. And to take such a giant step back, and especially with Trump's rhetoric, I think it was, it just felt different. I think Trump isn't a typical Republican. I don't even know if he's a conservative, but it just like the dialogue was just so ugly around that. And I just feel like the 2016 election till now, it just, it has a different feeling. It makes me almost like, even though I didn't like George W. as a president, like it makes me almost like wistful to those days. Because right now, Sad to say. Yeah. there's a sense of urgency in terms of not only just like progressive ideology that I feel are under attack, um, but it's just also the level of political discourse has gotten a lot more hateful, I think. And, you know, I feel like people's, um, I don't know, people's beliefs and in institutions have crumbled if you attack the press or election, electoral processes. The faith in democracy is being eroded and there's so much just hate, whether it's like the Charlottesville, Look what's, I mean, the then, rise of hate crimes. And even after that, all the stuff recently. Like I think even just even remember the days after the election, and I live in a very, very liberal Democrat area, even like in New York. And you just even, I think there's a park near me after the election where, you know, someone vandalized swastikas all over the park. A woman got punched in the face at a restaurant oh, in Carroll Gardens for, to her friends, just commenting that she was disappointed in the election and that she didn't like Trump and some guy who's a Trump supporter punched her in the face. So it just feels different than like if a, a McCain or a Romney had defeated Obama. It just feels like there's this heightened sense of urgency and there's a sense of like rising hate crimes and just general tribalism on both sides of we're not seeing but it's like you know for me i just feel like it's it just feels differently than other like every day it's something and every week you know the news are like this is the lowest the president's gotten but then it just things are just happening so frequently i forget what actually i was outraged last week or the week before that it's just the new cycle and that's it's very the, that's exhausting the effect and i think he you know him and his team knows what they're doing a year ago so it had been a year after he'd been elected you know they were saying you know with somebody like him you were talking about day you know days after the election the rise of a bunch of hate and I kind of thought well you can't really draw a straight line between you know what is the president of the United States and all the you know his his base and all these things that are happening I can now tell you it took me another year but recently with all of these things going on I do think that you know you can draw a straight line between a lot of the things that not only he speaks about but how he panders to his base and i'm now actually remembering that you're right like after he got elected in 2016 the next day in my office i had this girl who is i think she's hispanic and she you know lives here and in this pretty liberal town of new york where we have a bunch of minorities she literally said she felt unsafe and it was only when she said that that i was like Oh yeah, I never, and I was like, I, you know, maybe if I was living out somewhere in like Missouri or something, being a minority, I thought I might feel, you know, less safe. But even in New York, where I grew up, 
um, I felt kind of like less safe. I don't know why I kept putting it off for a year saying, you know, there's no way we can like blame one person or one person that got elected. We have too many forces that, you know, might counteract his ne- his negativity and it not really. Well, no one's reining him in and the thing is not all the stuff like Charlottesville and alt-right and all those things. It's like, it's not like he created them. He didn't. They've always been there. And I do think this is, this country is perhaps like deeply racist and misogynistic and it's not new it's just boiling to the surface again when you have the person in charge that is allowing it who does call himself a nationalist who equates you know there are fine people on both sides and i think it just gives all people an allowance to say and do certain things that it's okay. It's like the, he's, he's the president. And I think there's a slow, poisonous decay in just how we deal with each other and our institutions. And it just feels a lot more urgent and things can go I don't know. We have a lot because history is very. We don't. I don't think people in general learn from history, and I think. Well, that's things, why racism still exists. Yeah, and things happen, and things going on. We're like, you know, people have always said, "Oh, don't forget, you know, don't forget this genocide." But how many genocides have happened since the Holocaust? And people don't learn, and things, you know, people don't think it could happen here. But it's not that long ago that the Japanese Americans were put in internment camps, and would. Um, you know, under the right circumstances, could another similar type of internment happen here? Of course it could. I think after 9-11, I remember there were some, be it right-wing fringe journalists, but for major publications, calling for, like, maybe it's not that bad of an idea if we start doing internment camps for Malaysians, you know? Like, be it is a minority, it's not a mainstream idea. Um, but, you know, under the right circumstances and situations, I could easily see it happen. And if you have a president who is only talking about his base, not trying to unite, who's constantly blaming, you know, different groups for different things and literally fear-mongering, like before the election, it was all about this caravan of immigrants trying to come up from God, South America. Does anybody care? Once, but they did before the election, and but then, oh, I know they but cared. As, but soon, as, as soon they as, did a great job with scaring people. But after the election, you don't really hear about it. Fox totally News doesn't talk right. about it. So it's a lot of fear mongering, and I think this election just this the last two years just feels more vital, and it's like, you know, I didn't go down to D.C. to protest. I did what I could do here. But it is very tough to be hopeful. I was a little hopeful after the whole elected the midterms. But, you know, I don't really, I can't, I think for my own mental sanity, I can't really be that engaged anymore because otherwise I'm just going to have a panic attack. Oh, my God, because, again, it doesn't stop. I did have a bit, like, I, I was traveling earlier this year, and I think I was away this week. It was, I was jet-lagged in Europe, and I reached over to my phone and, like, looked at, like, CNN and be like, oh, what's going on? Because it was 3 in the morning, trying to go back to sleep, and I think there was, like, a shooting in Maryland at the newspaper company, and then... 
Justice Kennedy decided to retire, and then what does that mean for the makeup of the court? And it just gave me like a panic attack, and I think for my own mental sanity, you know, like and like I will follow the headlines to kind of just have a general idea. That's but, what like, I do now. I, I won't can't read in depth. I, I can't. I just want to know what's happening. You know. Broadly, to be an informed citizen, but there's a certain point where it's like it's mentally not um, healthy for me because I'm surrounded. I do live in a particular bubble. I live in a very liberal city. My family's very liberal. My friends are very liberal. Everyone at work is constantly outraged about whatever Republican GOP Trump thing is going on, and it's it's very exhausting. And I just can't consistently operate in the, that kind of world right now because there is a certain amount of, though I'm a little, I'm not completely hopeless, but it's kind of, so many things are happening and I think he just like, what did I read, that they just appointed a new guy for the EPA that wanted to like get rid of the EPA regulations. So yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, thing, issues like that, like environment, I feel like are under attack and, but the, at the t- end of the day, there's not much you can do other than vote, that and we just voted. The ones, right? But I'm just hoping that the people that we are electing in will like kind of trying to prevent as much damage as he could cause. I think it's it's too much coverage. I think you're actually you know, feeding into that too much. And while they're lining their pockets, it's, you know, the country's actually kind of being affected. It's, it, that's what kind of worries me, too. Well, it's tough, because I think this is a day and age, of like, which is a very, like, 24-hour news cycles. You have to fill up the hours. Now there's, like, internet, you know, so many different, like, oh, online you're right. things. You're right. So you hear about things anymore. But the thing is, he does make news. He does say offensive things. So you can't not report it, I guess, but it's like a tricky line because I he is the president. I think they all could just not. <laughs> but you're the president and you can't, but then you have to hold him accountable if he does have something shitty. You're right. You're and, right about but it's that. the only thing that's like, I understand that world and journalism and they have to report it. He is the president. I just miss it. I just miss, I'm like, yeah, I'm like nostalgic for the day and age where like I wasn't I didn't know who his cabinet was. Like, I wasn't always like, I can't name Obama's secretary of education. I have no idea who that is. But the the thing is, or, you know, like, I think I I know all the White House press secretaries at this point because he just hired, like, all these people who are nuts and making news in their own right. So, like, now... I don't necessarily think I'm following news more than I did during the Obama years, but like, there's just more craziness going on, so much commotion and infighting that I know who the chief of staff is, I know who these secretaries are, you know, because largely because they're making scandals and... Well, almost every single person that he's been putting into, like, you know, the key positions, including his cabinet, half of them have resigned because they've all had scandals. Yeah, so they're like spending too much money. Now, like, this whole thing, I didn't even look at, like, they, Melania they spending, have... like, $200,000 for one day trip to Toronto or Canada somewhere. So it's like, there's a lot of things that you hear about that I never knew that, like, I didn't follow who the White House press secretary is for any other president. Now, Sarah... Oh. 
Huckabee Sanders is everywhere and all the different secretaries, his cabinet, we just know everybody and Stephen Miller and Jared, you know, there's a lot more things that are happening that I am aware of. Because there are also some of them atypical folks um, from outside of politics, obviously, mm-hmm. that have come to work in the White House. Well, anyway, okay, so let's just wrap this up. I got one last question for you. So what do you think you'll be doing in 20 years? What do you think you, like, what would you like to be doing? Alive. And, and, and what would you Breathing. want your life to be like? <laughs> just as simple as that? To be breathing? Um, I don't know. It's really tough. It's like I think the... I am a big planner with things, I guess, with like making plans with you, dinner and everything, but I don't really have, it's such a like, it's Long-term really- Long-term goal, plans or No, it's just things, you know, who knows? Like life changes in a heartbeat, for better or for worse. Like, Great. who knows if I'll still be here? If I, maybe I'll be, I haven't been, ti- I'm not tired of New York yet, but like, Maybe next time <coughs> something happens and then I am tired or there's a new opportunity that takes me to a different city. So it's just really, you know, you know, I'm sure it's not to say that I don't have my own ambitions and things I want to do, but... Well, like, what kinds of things would you want to be doing? <laughs> like, like, Even yeah. if they're, like, dream projects like, Yeah, like, I, I want to write. Like, I've been writing. Oh, I went to school for writing, okay, so that would be great if I could, like, continue that, make money off of that. But, um... But it's I'm not it's not a, like necessarily a realistic goal, you know, to be like this will happen. Oh no no no! But it's just, just like yeah, I wouldn't mind doing like more exercising, like creativity and writing more. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I really necessarily plan beyond these kind of vague ideas about life because in twenty years it's like I'll be like retired. Oh, that's right. Ish. I'll be retired, close to retirement age. Like, who knows? Like, it's really hard for me even to think, like, how many years do I want to spend in my company, you know? Like, I have, I have no problem with it, but the idea, like, there's, like, the turnover rate in my job is, like, nobody leaves. And it's just the idea of being in a company for, like, 10, 20 years is really, like, intimidating. The thought and of that like, Yeah, because it's, like, that's, like, a... That's, like, a, a great percentage of your life. So yeah. I want to, like... You don't want to be too trying to stick to a certain script that you made, you know. I think life is, you know, it is an adventure. I try to, like, live every single day and try to, like, experience different things. So I think I can never say that I'm going to stay in New York. Maybe I'll run back to Boston because I miss it. Who knows? Like, sure. Or maybe go to L.A. or this job opportunity or whatever in Chicago. Like, I'm all open maybe to that. Paris. Yeah, that'd be great. I would love to live in Europe, especially who knows what's happening here. We might be for Toronto. Like, we might all have to move out of this country. We'll get deported. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for sitting down and talking with thank me today. Thank you for having me. I know. I was like, I think we ended up finding a whole lot about you, Reggie. Thanks so much again. Thank you.